From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome once again to Washington Watch. Coming up, President Trump sets up an epic Supreme Court confirmation battle with the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett on Saturday. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer immediately said he would strongly oppose her nomination. Well, what can we expect over the next 30 days? And just uh, what are the qualifications of this nominee? We'll talk about it in just a moment with Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton. Also this past Saturday, hundreds of thousands of folks answered the call to come to D.C. and pray for the nation. It was encouraging to be able to pray at both the return with Rabbi Khan and a D.C. prayer march with uh, Franklin Graham. I'm convinced that these calls to prayer and the response to them reveals that God is moving in America. Now, there's another prayer event taking place on October the 6th in Plymouth, Massachusetts, which I believe holds tremendous significance. Why? Well, Pastor Carter Conlon of Times Square Church, who is the organizer, is here to explain. And the final night of the Values Voters Summit on Friday night, I sat down with uh, President Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, for an insightful conversation with a values voter who is now the president's right-hand man. I think you'll be encouraged by the interview with Mark Meadows. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is at T. Perkins. And let me encourage you, if you've not taken the challenge to do so, the challenge to pray, to vote, and to stand. Text the word vote. I'll send you, I'll enroll you in the challenge. Just text the word vote to 53445. That number again, 53445. The word vote will send you a link. All right, after a, a week of waiting, we now confirm that President Trump on Saturday selected Amy Coney Barrett as the next Supreme Court nominee. With just uh, six weeks away, uh, we're just six weeks away from the election, and the ideological control of the court will be determined by this selection. This nomination is certain to trigger an epic confirmation battle process. And um, here to talk about this is Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Senator, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, Tony, thank you very much for having me on. It was a great weekend at the White House, not only for the president and Judge Barrett and her family, but for the country and all those who care about our Constitution and the rule of law in America. Let's start with her qualifications. Well, Judge Barrett is eminently qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. She has one of the finest legal minds of her generation. Uh, She was top of her class at Notre Dame Law School. She clerked for the great judges, uh, Larry Silverman uh, on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, and Justice Scalia at the Supreme Court. And after a a short but distinguished career as a practicing attorney, has been a professor at Notre Dame for 15 years until we confirmed her just three years ago to go on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And I can tell you that, Tony, over the last uh, week, I've had a chance to review uh, all of her opinions. She's written about 100 opinions. A lot of them are kind of dry and technical, but all of them are exquisitely reasoned, very sound, sober, wise, and prudent, which is exactly what you would expect from a judge like Amy Coney Barrett. I think she will be an outstanding Supreme Court justice as well. Now, Senator Cotton, I hear a lot of squealing from the other side of the aisle. Uh, Can't get this done. Not enough time. Uh, uh, Senator Durbin in Illinois said, well, there's just no way to get this done in 30 days. Not not, not reasonable. Um, But there's been confirmations in less time that have been accomplished. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Tony. We have more than enough time to complete this uh, confirmation process before the election. Uh, we're 36 days away now. Uh, we confirmed uh, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, through the Senate in 33 days. John Paul Stevens was confirmed in just 19 days. Um, so there's a few reasons why this can be done. Uh, so first, um, although it is true that many confirmation processes in recent years have taken about two months, that's also because most vacancies occur when the Supreme Court term ends in early July. Ahead of that, the, the Senate has its August recess, and the Supreme Court doesn't sit in session until October. So there is no reason to move faster than that somewhat leisurely pace. But I can tell you, having been through two of these confirmations, Tony, uh, the, the amount of work that takes place in that two-month period in recent confirmations adds up to a lot less than two months of work. Uh, second, we just confirmed Amy, Amy Coney Barrett less than three years ago. Right. So she's already been vetted. There's already been a background check. We've all done our work on Judge Barrett over the last 35 months. I can't imagine that she's engaged in any complex business transactions or overseas travel meeting with shady foreigners. All you really need to do is to review the written record, review those 100 opinions. Again, I said I, I've done it in just a matter of a few days. Any senator can do it. There is more than enough time to have a careful, deliberate process that doesn't cut any corners or skip any steps, but has Judge Barrett confirmed as Justice Barrett next month. So that, that's a pretty in, uh, significant point there, is that she was clearly vetted. In fact, we saw uh, Judge Feinstein, I mean, Judge Senator Feinstein, uh, ranking member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, said that, um, you know, that was the word she took her to task for her Catholic faith, saying, you know, the dogma speaks loudly within you. I mean, all of that stuff has been looked at. All of that stuff has gone before the committee. So now it's really what's transpired since that last confirmation and, as you pointed out, the opinions that she has issued since then. I mean, that's really what's in question now. Yeah, and and, and those opinions speak for themselves. But, but Tony, it, you raise a very important point. Regrettably, uh, Judge Barrett wasn't just vetted in her last confirmation. She was also attacked and, and I would say harassed for her faith. As you said, Dianne Feinstein, the senior Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, attacked her, saying the dogma lived loudly inside her. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not sure I've ever heard dogma used in a positive term, uh, Tony. Uh, Dick Durbin, the number two Democrat in the Senate, asked her if she was an Orthodox Catholic. Uh, I don't know what that means, and she said she didn't know what it means either. Maybe it means that Dick Durbin is worried that she actually believes in her faith. Right. Um, Kamala Harris, uh, Joe Biden's running mate, a member of the Judiciary Committee, attacked another judge for belonging to the Knights of Columbus, a Catholic service organization. So the Democrats have repeatedly attacked Judge Barrett for her faith. They've created the kind of environment that you see over the weekend for vile invective directed towards her and to her family and her seven children. They ought to renounce those kinds of attacks on her character and her family and her faith and make it clear that what is inbound is only her Jewish prudence and her judicial philosophy, not her faith, not her family. Senator Cotton, when you look at the makeup of the court, this is going to shift the court based upon what we know about uh, Judge Barrett to a constitutionalist court. I mean, a court with a majority of constitutionalist originalists on the court where 
uh, you're not going to see an activist court legislating from the bench. I mean, that's the anticipation here. That's a big break from what we've seen in the last 60 years because the left, everything they've wanted to accomplish, they've done through the court. So we can just, I mean, you can guarantee that this is going to be an epic battle. What is going to be their line of attack to try to stop this? Yeah, Tony, this uh, after Judge Barrett has confirmed the Supreme Court, I think this will be the best court from a constitutionalist perspective in modern times, perhaps ever. Um, not every justice uh, that I've supported rules on every case the way I would like. Even the great Justice Scalia and I occasionally had disagreements, although I was very comforted when Judge Barrett said that Justice Scalia was her model of justice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we can expect this to be the uh, soundest court from a constitutionalist perspective, maybe ever. And therefore, the Democrats are going to stoop or they, there's nothing to which they won't stoop. I mean, we saw it last time with Brett Kavanaugh. They didn't just say that uh, he was too conservative or that he was extreme or his opinions were wrongly decided. They accused him of leading a drug dealing gang rapist ring right. when he was in high school and college. Can they so do can that? To, can they do that to her since she's already gone through the confirmation before? I mean, can they say, "Well, we found new evidence"? Are they going to be able to do that or well, try to do that? Well, I, I think you know. Again, regrettably, uh, Democrats like Kamala Harris and Dianne Feinstein have created an environment in which their supporters, liberal activists, democratic strategists, feel free to attack Judge Barrett, for instance, for adopting two Haitian children. Yeah, um, yeah, That's our, and, those are already out I there. I think it's really incumbent upon the Democrats to make it clear that those kind of vile attacks on her character and her children are out of bounds. Uh, unfortunately, given their behavior in the confirmations hearings for Judge Kavanaugh, um, I doubt that they're going to be exercising any restraint or prudence when it comes to their attacks. But I can tell you, I, I don't think I've ever seen Republican senators more resolved and more united around this nominee and defending her through this process and ultimately confirming her to the highest court in the land. Mm, that's encouraging to hear, uh, Senator Cotton. I, I, I get it. I mean, I, I think probably this is a question that's on the minds of, of many who track this, is that you mentioned Kavanaugh, and, I mean, th- those attacks were vicious. It was just unbelievable, but, but it backfired. I mean, it, it backfired, I think, on the Democrats. It rallied people to, um, the, to, to, to not only Kavanaugh, but to the president for making that selection. I mean, I remember Lindsey Graham making an impassioned speech. I mean, it made him a hero among conservatives. I mean, are, are, they, are they so wedded to their liberal wing of their party that they will risk at all to try to appease them by going on the attack? Um, so I do think that those baseless attacks on Justice Kavanaugh backfired. You can see it in the election results a month after that vote on the Senate floor. The four Democrats who voted against him up for re-election lost their re-election. The one Democrat who voted for him won. And the American people didn't just send Republicans back in the majority. They expanded our majority because they were so appalled by the baseless attacks they saw on Justice Kavanaugh's character. Uh, I think it will backfire even worse for the Democrats uh, when they attack Judge Barrett. Uh, Again, though, it seems to be something they're incapable of stopping. They just cannot help themselves. Um, so I expect um, it's going um, to be a, 
uh, unpleasant sight and not a pretty sight at the confirmation hearings when these Democrats have um, revved up uh, their attack machine. And as you said at the outset, Tony, it's because, you know, they think that they own the Supreme Court. Yeah. That the Supreme Court is a one-way ratchet that moves the country ever more in a leftward direction. Uh, and that's simply not the case. Well, it's the only way, though, that they can accomplish their agenda. And they can't get it uh, through the legislature. I mean, even Congress, as bad as it is at times, is not where they are. And the American people are not there. So the only way they can get it is by imposing it through the courts. They have frequently, in modern times, resorted to litigation, that which they cannot achieve through legislation. Uh, and I, I'm confident um, whatever issues arise uh, in the future of this court, that this court will protect our Constitution. It will protect the rights of our citizens, but it will also leave most political and moral questions where they belong, yes. which is in the hands of our citizens acting through their democratically elected representatives, be they in Washington, in state capitals, or in local government. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton, we're out of time, but on the way out, quick question. How significant of a moment is this? It's a hugely significant moment, Tony. Again, this may be proved to be the best court the country has ever had. Um, and I think the Democrats are going to show their true colors in the month before election. And I think that is going to backfire on them again, as it did 2018. All right. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. All right, uh, folks. I mean, look, it is significant. And with something as significant as this comes the battle. So our job, pray, pray, vote and stand. Take the challenge. All right. When we come back, Pastor Carter Conlon of Times Square Church in New York joins us about a special prayer event coming up October 6th. Don't go away. In this important season for our nation, it is imperative for Christians to pray. While we have a responsibility to vote for biblical values and stand for truth, our priority should always be to seek the Lord first. Each week until the election, FRC and FRC Action will host a special Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to equip you to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth. We'll have experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders join us for these half-hour programs that will help you see through the fog that's been created by the biased lenses of the mainstream media. While you're there, be sure to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge and make a commitment to pray for our nation, vote biblical values, and stand for truth during this 2020 election season. To watch the broadcasts and to take the 2020 Pray, Vote, Stand Challenge, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. 
Go to frc.org slash prolifemaps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash prolifemaps. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is at T. Perkins. All right, as I mentioned at the top of the program, this past Saturday, hundreds of thousands of folks answered the call to come to D.C. and pray on the nation's mall. It was phenomenal. I've not seen anything like it in 25 years when I was there with Promise Keepers, and it was encouraging for me to be able to pray with both the return with Rabbi Khan and uh, with uh, Franklin Graham in the D.C. March. But there's something happening. I'm just going to tell you. I, I, I walked past groups that were praying um, individually, and it was just, and I stopped with my wife and my youngest son who was with me and just praying, and I just sensed God was at work. He's doing something. I mean, he wouldn't, con- he wouldn't be calling people to pray if he had given up on this nation. And there's another prayer event coming that, to me, could be the most significant. Because it is going to be in Plymouth, Massachusetts, on October the 6th. And this is the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims coming to this land when they made a covenant with God. And God poured out his grace and mercy. But the man leading that joins me now in studio, no stranger to uh, to this program, Pastor Carter Conlon of Times Square Church, the author of It's Time to Pray. Uh, he is leading this effort, and he joins us now in studio. Pastor Carter, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thanks, Tony. It's just a real pleasure to be here with you. All right. Uh, this event, October the 6th, Lord Forgive Us, T- tell our listeners, first, before we get into this, how it's going to happen and what it's going to be, talk about how it came about. Well, my wife and I were on our way home August 2019 from vacation, and she asked me if we could stop and see Plymouth Rock, which she'd never seen it, neither had I, and she was a bit of a history buff, so she'd like to stop and have a look at it. So we went there, and we're sitting on a bench uh, in the vicinity of where the colonnade is now that uh, houses this rock, and somebody called my name. And it turns out she was the daughter of um, a, a husband and wife who had two and a half years before that, been led of the Lord to buy the first house or a house built in 1790 that sits on the foundation of the very first house in America where the surviving pilgrims prayed. The 51 who survived that first year, more than that died, they prayed. And they bought the house and the Lord told them to wait. 
while they were waiting, they started praying with our worldwide prayer meeting at Times Square Church, uh, the same every Tuesday night, 7 to 9 Eastern time. And he began to pray. He said, Lord, could you make a way that I could meet that man, speaking of me? About two months later, I was sitting on a bench 30 yards from his house, and I ended up going to his house. We prayed inside the house, and that's when the Lord began to speak to me that he wanted me to come back to this house and pray and ask him for forgiveness for what we as Americans have done with the 400 years of freedom that he gave to us. And so that's what this prayer meeting is about. It's a God-initiated prayer meeting. We're not just going to confess our sin, but we're also going to spend time praying for future blessings. There'll be all kinds of people from different walks of life, and they'll also be praying as well. And, of course, you'll be there with me as well, so we're looking forward to that. Well, I've had a a chance to kind of see some of this unfold. I went with you uh, and your wife, and my wife went to um, Plymouth last fall, and as this was kind of coming together, in, in quite frankly, remarkable story. But the timing. The timing. This is the 400th anniversary. What's significant about that? Well, it's uh, it's it's just a uh, it's the 400th year, and if you look in the scriptures, it was 400 years that the children of Israel were captivated in Egypt when God set them free. There's 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's a, there's really a significance to that number, and I foresee God wanting to show us a season of mercy as a nation. That's that's the way I perceive this. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord told Ezekiel, he said, the, the nation is so rotten that it was obvious it's going to have to be judged. That's in Ezekiel 22. But then he says, I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. And so I found none. So here's the nation is, is on the brink of being judged. And God, this is a sight of God nobody could even hear any longer. Isn't it amazing? The most religious nation in the earth, and they couldn't hear, nobody could hear the voice of God. He says, I want to show mercy to a nation that in the natural doesn't look like it deserves it anymore. And so I'm seeking for somebody to simply agree with me that I should give a mercy moment to the nation. So that's how I perceive this prayer meeting, is that it's satisfying God's desire, in a sense, to show a mercy moment for America. And, and it is a prayer meeting. Uh, now, there's been many hurdles placed in uh, in the way as uh, this is as we're moving toward October the 6th, number one, chief of which is the coronavirus, because we had planned to actually have a big event there in Plymouth. Now it's basically a virtual event that's going to be streamed, and people from around the world will be able to participate. But the response to me also shows that God is in this. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Lord is in it. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever. The fact that he would choose a uh, former Canadian citizen... Uh, who doesn't know anything of the, or very little of the history of this, and take me there and say, this is what, I'm an American citizen now by choice. And I said, but I'd like you to just simply confess the sins of the nation. So that's going to be my part of this meeting, just starting from the right from the beginning and going right through to the present day. Now, this place, uh, lot number one in Plymouth, also the place, that ground, that half-acre ground, was where the pilgrims had the first Thanksgiving, is it not? It's where the first Thanksgiving was held. It's where the 51 that were emaciated. They were just, they had no plan, no strategy, no health. They had nothing, only a promise that they were being taken to a nation where they could worship freely and according to conscience. The first Thanksgiving was there in the front yard. There's diagrams of it in the house. 
and also it was where the uh, treaty with the uh, native Indian people of the area was signed uh, in that house. And, and I think they lived in peace for... 60 years. Yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's one of those things that, folks, I, I had the opportunity to kind of see some of this come together, and it's just remarkable. You see God's hand in it. Uh, Pastor Carter Conlon, we're up against a break, um, but when we come back, I want to talk about the, the, your, what you would like to see come from this prayer gathering and how people can be a part of it, how they can connect with it. And um, I, I, I think it's one of those things that God is clearly moving in our nation. I mean, we saw it this past weekend in Washington with hundreds of thousands of people coming in. Pastor Carter, you were there. You were one of the ones that were, was praying. And it was quite remarkable to see what God was doing. Absolutely. Very. All right, folks, we're going to continue our conversation with Pastor Carter Conlon of Times Square Church about Lord Forgive Us, a special prayer initiative, a gathering on October the 6th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can be a part of it. I'm going to tell you how on the next, next uh, on the other side, I should say, of this break. Don't go away. We're back with more Washington Watch right after this. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, i definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. Tony Perkins here, Washington Watch, the website, TonyPerkins.com. Joining me in studio, Pastor Carter Conlon of Times Square Church, who is organizing, Lord, forgive us, October the 6th, a prayer event that is taking place from Plymouth, Massachusetts. 
All right, Carter, how can people find out about connecting with this? Well, they can go to our website at tsc.nyc. That's timesquarechurch.newyorkcity. And uh, there will be information on there. Or they can go to another website called It's Time to Pray, all lowercase, all one word. It's timetopray.org, and there will be information on there. We expect so many people in for this that there will be instructions uh, there where to find it on uh, on various on Facebook or YouTube and such like. So, But if they stick with that, it keeps it simple. I mean, I'm again, I'm just um, I have such anticipation of what is going to happen here because of the, these calls to prayer. And again, I was there with you last fall and, and I've been reading f- with my son of Plymouth Plantation. It was the, the history of the pilgrims, uh, the a diary of the pilgrims in their uh, first 25, 30 years there. And it's just remarkable the obstacles they face. And in fact, I've, you and I have talked about this. I said, you know, if, if the pilgrims had the mentality we have today, we wouldn't have a country. Uh, because we're afraid of everything, and mm-hmm. I think this is a this is a return to I believe a covenantal relationship with with God. He said, "If you follow me, I'm going to bless you." And He blessed this nation beyond anything we've ever seen before, but we've turned away. What is what is your expectation, and what is it you would like you think God is doing here? Well, I think He's going to do something that is so far beyond what we can even think or ask. My heart is that we would have a spiritual awakening, a moment of mercy for the nation, where uh, masses of individual people would come to Christ as Lord and Savior, where our children would be delivered from the the radicalization that's happening from uh, nursery now right through to college. Uh, Our families would be strengthened, essentially speaking, that, that this mountain that we're facing would be removed and cast into the sea. That for a season, I don't know how long that season would be, but that we could know perhaps our last great awakening in America, our last spiritual awakening, and f- for however long that's going to last. That, that is my hope. When I, when I look back at, the, at what God said to Ezekiel, it, it's because my, my question was the night that I first went to this house, is, Lord, why did you lead me here? And, and what is it that you're trying to tell me? And I felt in my heart that he was, he was sharing with me that he was looking to establish a moment of mercy on the nation. He was looking to give this nation a moment of mercy. And, and if we were willing to simply obey him and uh, go to that house where it all began. You know, I had a picture in my mind, Tony, of uh, 51 people. Like, everybody's in sorrow, right? They've, they've all lost somebody. Husbands have lost wives, wives, husbands, parents, children. The 103 plus a baby landed and 51 are alive after the first year. And we're going to be on the very spot, the very 20 by 20 by 400 square foot spot that these 51 people prayed. And I felt when I prayed the night when I was first led to the house that Jesus Christ told me, I made a covenant with these people. And I don't fully understand that, but I can just imagine them in that room saying, God, you promised us that you would give us a land where we could worship you freely and according to conscience. And we have no plan. We have no strength. We're surrounded by enemies. We're filled with sorrow. But I, the one thing I love about these people, Tony, is they were all in. Yeah. For our sake, for your sake and for my sake. They, they, in, in fact, um, uh, Bradford writes, he said, they undertook this. If yet they were just stepping stones to the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they knew that they might not see 
what they had embarked upon come into fulfillment. But by faith, they went. Well, I, I was just looking at the statistics. I mean, God took them from 51 people to 330 million. Talk about an increase. And from 400 square feet to we've got, uh, I forget, 300 square, uh, 3 million square miles in America, whatever it is today. I had, I had the figures a couple of days ago. And just the amazing blessing of God. And I feel in my heart the Lord saying, I want to bless you again. But all of that is at stake because God's promise, you know, just as he put a blessing on the children of Israel and they were coming out of Egypt, I will bless you if you obey me and follow me. But you are, a curse is going to pursue you. And in fact, in Leviticus, I, I prayed this this uh, Saturday at the return, where in Leviticus it says you, that you will be... Um, You'll be scared by a, a rattling leaf mm-hmm. because I'll put fear in your heart when you turn away from me. And mm-hmm. I just see that's a picture of where America is today. The, the plus side of all of that is the verse where uh, he appears to Solomon at night after the dedication of the temple and says, I've heard your prayer, Solomon. Yes. And if I have to send blasting or mildew or if an enemy rises up, if my people right. are called by my name. You know, so there's there's an if in this whole situation. And maybe... Going back to Plymouth is part of that if. I, I, we, we saw a great part of it today uh, in, the, in the return. And uh, going back to Plymouth, saying, Lord, forgive us for what we, what we did with what you gave us. There's an if then. If you do that, then I'll do this. Yes. And there is that, uh, that promise. But I think part of it is acknowledging, number one, we've, we've strayed. Mm-hmm. And number two, these things that are happening. As uh, Solomon prayed, the plagues, uh, the the famines, the the enemies, that that's a result of our broken relationship with God. Oh, totally! It always has been. All but we can't. Scripture. It's politically incorrect to say that today. Oh. You, you know, you're politically incorrect. I hope so. Okay. All right. <laughs> Pastor Carter Conlon, so great to have you uh, here on Washington Watch. And let me tell you, folks, I am looking forward to October the sixth. And Lord, forgive us. Plymouth, Massachusetts. Find out more. Go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. Be a part of it. I think it's going to be one one for the history books. All right, don't go away. We're coming back with an interview I did with the chief of staff to the president of the United States. That's next. Don't go away. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. Consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, He addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. 
Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash humansexuality. The history of the United States is preserved in archives, books, and the collective memory of the American people. It is also preserved through monuments and memorials that visually represent the extraordinary history of our nation. To tell these stories and remind ourselves of the importance of these memorials, Family Research Council has a new blog series highlighting the most recognizable and popular monuments in our nation's capital. This series devotes particular attention to the historical and spiritual themes depicted in each monument, sharing some not-so-well-known facts about their history, design, and symbolic meaning that shed light on our nation's deep religious heritage. This series aims to inspire the next generation to see the importance of these monuments and to remind us of the virtues and lessons that they memorialize. To read FRC's monument series, visit frcblog.org slash monuments. Again, that's frcblog.org slash monuments. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. Let me again encourage you to take the challenge to pray, vote, and stand. Text the word vote to 53445. That's 53445, the word vote. Pray, vote, and stand. All right. In this final segment, this comes from the last night of the Values Voter Summit this past Friday night. I sat down with the Chief of Staff to the President of the United States, Mark Meadows. Longtime friend. You'll hear about that in the interview. But here's a man who went from being a Values Voter Summit attendee to being the Chief of Staff to the President of the United States. I think you will find this conversation encouraging. We're in the Secretary of War suite at the White House complex with the Chief of Staff for the President of the United States, Mark Meadows. Uh, It's great to be with you, Tony, and all the value voters that have tuned in uh, tonight and hopefully will be able to share a little bit behind the scenes. I'd like to do that. Speaking of values voters, this is the 15th annual gathering going all the way back to uh, 2005. And you were uh, in some of those early value voter uh, meetings. Yeah, uh, uh, Debbie and I actually had, had attended when, uh, like many of the, the people that are tuned in tonight, uh, uh, literally are activists wanting to make sure that their values are heard in Washington, D.C., uh, and and for us, it was more about making sure that we weren't silent. And so uh, 15 years, it seems like just yesterday, but, uh, uh, you know, there's probably no more impactful gathering of, of conservative uh, Christian values that we get to hear, uh, whether it's in the administration or on Capitol Hill, than the Values Voters uh, Summit that happens each and every year. Uh, you get a lot of energy, uh, a lot of headlines, uh, and a lot of press. 
And I remember having a conversation with you after uh, one of those gatherings. I don't remember which one. And uh, you, you were just sensing that maybe the Lord was leading you to move more directly into the arena. And it wasn't long after that you were uh, elected to Congress. Well, it felt a calling to run for Congress. Uh, as you know, it was, uh, was not uh, the thing that I ever had on my bucket list, never wanted to, to be uh, a member of Congress, but felt a call to serve uh, uh, our country and our fellow man. And, uh, you know, the, the, the next thing you know, uh, the, the people of Western North Carolina had elected me as a member of Congress. Uh, we started the Freedom Caucus, a number of things. Uh, Never thought I'd be, uh, you know, with cameras and lights and uh, microphones, uh, you know, in, in whether it's in this building or in my home or anywhere else. And now it's uh, pretty much uh, something that you have to get used to because I'm a, I'm a fairly shy individual. And so I never uh, I thought I'd be on TV. And, and now that I am, it's, it's one of those things that uh, uh, you just want to make sure you don't mess up. Well, you were very successful in business. Um, you know, we we got to know you. Yeah, you came up came, to North Carolina in, and yeah, stayed in your home, yeah, and we've yeah. uh, we've done things together. Uh, but you're a values voter, uh, yeah. and if you look around yeah. the president, President Donald Trump, you look at his cabinet. This president has surrounded himself by true conservatives. Well, he has, and I think for him, it's all about the forgotten man and woman. He wanted to make sure that the values that are evident every day on Main Street, not just uh, in our places of business or schools, but in in churches and houses of worship uh, across the country, that those values were brought to Washington, D.C. Most of Washington, D.C. wants their values to be uh, put uh, out across the country, whether it's in Florida to Maine or from New York to California or in between, uh, they want to take the D.C. values and put it that way. And, and this president was right in saying that he wanted their values to be represented in his administration. And he's been very purposeful in doing that, uh, you know, with uh, a great degree of success, but also a, a great de- degree of, of criticism and uh, and hopefully. Um, we'll see in, in a second term uh, how he's able to accomplish even that much more. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. I'm going to talk about what it's like to be chief of staff for <laughs> President Donald Trump. But, but I, there, you represent what I see happening in the Republican Party and in the conservative movement, which is, it kind of reminds me of the scripture, if, if we don't lose heart, we will reap yeah. in time. And I look at your district in particular, and, and, and I have a, a little time frame here. I've been here almost 20 years, so I get a, the, the vantage point of seeing what's happened. But your congressional district, uh, 2006, the Democrats were able to knock off a kind of a moderate Republican, yeah. uh, replace him with a conservative Democrat, Heath Shuler, who was right. uh, at dinner with, spoke right. to many times, was yeah. a good friend. Um, and but he was forced to go along with the uh, Democratic Party, Barack Obama's health care plan, pro-abortion, and and set himself up for defeat. Right. Uh, you defeated him. Right. That's actually been happening across the country. And for those conservatives out there that are discouraged by what they see happening in the streets or the rhetoric that they see in the media or this cancel culture. The reason I think that's happening, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're actually prevailing 
by our steady commitment to these core values and principles? Well, it, it's a commitment to the principles. It's also being willing to be the same person uh, in Washington, D.C. that you might uh, uh, have campaigned on back home. For me, it was in North Carolina or across the country. But it's also those values that resonate the most. And you mentioned my district, uh, which actually went from uh, a swing district back and forth to one that was uh, elected a, a very conservative member of Congress. Uh, but it also has another message is that you need to speak up for your your values. And, and if the people watching tonight, if they're willing to speak up for the values, what happens is there's a lot of people that are not willing to speak up, but if their neighbor speaks up or if their friend speaks up or somebody they go to church with speaks up, all of a sudden they say, I'm not alone. That's the influence. Yeah. That's the influence yeah. we have and we stand for those core values we believe in and, right. and not shrink back into the shadows. And so it's just, and again, there's a reason to step in here, not just for the things that you read about in the papers or see in the headlines, but the things that happen each and every day uh, that men and women of deep conviction that are here do that go unseen. Well, I think that's the message for those that are tuned in uh, to this summit, uh, you know, which we're having to have in a very unconventional way instead of a, uh, you know, an auditorium filled with people. They're hopefully uh, tuned in online uh, this evening. But as we look at that, uh, my message to them is is very simple, is is if they will, will stay engaged, if they will remain true to their convictions, and no matter how small their contribution may or may not be, uh, look for it to blossom and bear great fruit. Uh, I've been able to witness it, and I have the, the benefit of being able to look backwards and say, boy, uh, you know, if you're faithful in just that small thing, it's amazing uh, how God can bless it. You know, when you were in that five-way primary running your first race for Congress, did you ever yeah. envision yourself being the chief of staff for the president? No, I never envisioned my, you know, listen, being chief of staff is the greatest honor that anybody could ever have. There's there's only been 29 chiefs of staff. People uh, look at this uh, job uh, and this role very, very differently uh, than than I ever did. But uh, no, I, I never expected to even meet the president of the United States, let alone work for him. And uh, and it's been a great honor and, and one that uh, that each and every day you look at at what are the priorities? Uh, what are the priorities that the president has? And then how do we best make sure those get done? Because this president is a president of action. If you give him words without actions, he will call you out immediately. Um, this president cares deeply about these issues. I know his, he doesn't come from the same, you know, he was never an attendee at the Values Voter Summit until he was a candidate and right. a, a, a successful businessman. Right. Different set of values, uh, you know, to some degree. But there's not been a president that has embraced these issues of religious freedom, the sanctity of life. And, and I know you've heard more conversations in private than I have, but this president has said the same things privately as he has said publicly. In fact, oftentimes he says more privately about making sure that he fights for that forgotten man and woman and for their values and making sure that, that when uh, the big arm of government wants to come in and say that you, know, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't care about your religious liberties, when you shouldn't care uh, about life, uh, 
that he's been willing to to fight. And and what happens is is a lot of administrations do what I, I call they play it safe. They get in, they play it safe, they campaign four years later and say, well, gosh, we didn't get it done the first four years. We're going to get it done in that second uh, uh, term. This president didn't play it safe. He, he, I mean, if it's out there, if he made a campaign promise, he wants to make sure he fulfills it. You know, we've got an embassy in Jerusalem. Uh, that many other presidents have have promised to do, and it was this president who was willing to to really go against advisors, even in the White House. That says, you know, it's going to create all kinds of of uh, unbelievable problems. And so, what do we see now? Uh, we see a, a president that is willing to engage, um, and and really take bold and courageous actions because of the American people willing to stand up uh, with him and behind him and encouraging. And that's why I think you've made a good chief of staff for him, because as a businessman, you were a risk taker. You were a developer. You took risk. You knew that the reward was in proportion to the risk that you were willing to take. And quite frankly, the political class here is too risk adverse. Uh, oh, that's so right. I, now, that's interesting you say that, and I, 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 I didn't really think about that. But most politicians, the riskiest thing they do is run for office the first time. And then after they get here, it's like, you know, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, they get that precious ring and they say, well, oh, I, I can't, I, I just, the precious is always there and they can't let go of it. And, uh, and, but the riskiest thing they do is run for office. And then once they get here is they do everything to mitigate the risk and become ineffective. And, uh, this president is a risk taker and he's willing, uh, in spite of unbelievable persecution and, uh, unbelievable ridicule, take the risk to do what he promised the American people we would do. And it's it's an honor to serve him. Yeah, I think one of the areas where that's most evident is in the, the courts. And we're going to see that uh, here very soon. <laughs> yeah, and the president making a nomination, yeah. so I'm not going to squeeze you for... Uh, yeah, well, it wouldn't work anyways. I'd love to love to, to put it all out there. But I, it, I've had more media call me about who is it going to be and... and, and uh, but you see, you see the, the, the political class wants to go the path of least resistance. This president, just watching him for the last four years, he's going to go for the biggest return. And, yeah. and, and that, I think, is what defines him as a president that will go down in history as making a difference. And, you know, quite frankly, our nation was, is at that point where if we don't make big difference, a big difference, a change, yeah. uh, we're, we're on a path that's not sustainable, both culturally, economically, in every, every way. Well, throughout history. It has been those who are willing to make uh, the most significant uh, impact on their current society that have historically meant the most. You know, sometimes people want to be a historical figure and they say, well, if I do this, I will go down in history. That's not the way great leaders and it's not the way that this president thinks about it. He wants to, in the moment, make the right decision, do something that truly will make a difference. And because of that, they're historical in nature. And, and, you know, just looking at the things that he's done in the first four years, uh, history books will be kind to the accomplishments of this president, uh, where he set in motion things that uh, will for, forever be remembered. I think you're absolutely right. I, I, I got to ask you one final question. Yeah. Um, it's an unorthodox question, but what 
surprised you most about the president when you became his chief of staff? Any surprise? I think the, the biggest surprise for me is, is how hard he works and how much he personally cares. And, and uh, he, he may not even like me talking about the personal uh, care that he has. Uh, uh, I thought I was the hardest working guy in Washington, D.C., and I can tell you that that is not the case. I mean, he uh, he works harder. Uh, you know, we're on the phone early in the morning, late at night, and then, uh, you know, he would give me 10 to do's uh, in the afternoon and then ask me the next morning if I've got them done. <laughs> Does he sleep? Uh, he, he very rarely sleeps. He's uh, constantly reading. Uh, he's constantly taking notes, and if he sees something that he doesn't like, uh, he'll pick up the phone and he'll he'll call and say, you know, let's get this taken care of. So uh, that was a big surprise. But the other other part of it is, is when he hears the stories of people that are hurting in America, um, regardless of their party affiliation, he uh, he wants to do something about it. And, and oftentimes has done things about it from a personal standpoint, not his capacity as president. Uh, you know, if the media could write about the, the, the president and the man that I get to see behind the scenes, um, they would write a, a very different story and they would uh, they'd be touched by the things that I get to see. I've seen just a little bit of that. I know in 2016, when he was actually running for president, we had the floods in Louisiana. Yeah. And he came down. I, I, I traveled with him and Franklin Graham and the vice president, and, and uh, he would stop to get out and talk to, to those that were dragging all of their possessions out of their home that was flooded. And, and he did care. You see that, that he is a compassionate individual. Uh, Mark Meadows, Thank thanks you. so much. All right. That was my conversation with the president's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Actually, you can go and uh, and see all of the clips from last week's Values Voters Summit. Go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over. Great week. For all of those who participated, thank you for joining us. Powerful, powerful week. Again, if you've not yet taken the challenge, do so. Text the word VOTE to 53 53- Four four five. That's five three four four five. Folks, thanks so much for being with us. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul, found in Ephesians six, where he says, "When you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing." Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is powered by the Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 